I think the international community should, for once, take a serious position towards investing on Sudan security arrangements, which is quite connected to transformation to democracy. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. On Saturday, April 15th, fighting broke out in Khartoum and elsewhere in Sudan. At time of recording, hundreds of people have been killed, all commercial air travel has been suspended, and international aid operations have come to a halt. In the massive city of Khartoum, millions of people are sheltering in place with dwindling supplies of food and water. And that includes my guest today, Hala Al-Karib. She is a Sudanese activist, research practitioner, and director of the Strategic Initiative for Women in the Horn of Africa. When I last spoke with Hala Al-Karib in late February, she more or less predicted the crisis we are seeing today, which is the result of a failure of a transition to democracy in Sudan. Very briefly, you may recall that back in 2018, Sudanese civilians rose up in mass protest against the nearly 30-year rule of dictator Omar al-Bashir. The military stepped in and removed Bashir and entered into a power-sharing agreement with civilian civil society leaders. This was supposed to lead to full civilian control. But in October 2021, two military leaders joined forces to oust the civilian leadership. These two leaders ran the country very badly and under heavy international and domestic pressure, entered into yet another agreement to transition back to civilian rule. But these two military men are now fighting each other for control of Sudan. General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan is the leader of the Sudanese Armed Forces, the SAF, Mohamed Hamdan Daglo, better known as Hameti, leads the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, the RSF. These two men have a long history together. They both cut their teeth fighting against an insurgency in Darfur in the early 2000s. Darfur is in the western periphery of Sudan, and the counterinsurgency in which these two men participated amounted to a genocide. Hameti's RSF grew out of the Janjaweed militia responsible for the worst atrocities in Darfur and became a very capable fighting force, hired out by Saudi Arabia to support their goals in Yemen and by the United Arab Emirates to advance their interests in Libya. The RSF has also partnered with Russia's Wagner Group around mineral extraction in Sudan. Meanwhile, Burhan's Sudanese armed forces receives considerable support from Egypt. Now, these two powerful militaries are fighting each other on the streets of Khartoum, in Darfur, and elsewhere for control of the state. 
Needless to say, this has all the potential to be an absolutely devastating crisis. Hala Al-Karib kicks off our conversation by explaining that despite the predictable failure of the democratic transition in Sudan, people were still caught off guard by the actual outbreak of fighting. We then go on to discuss some of the broader conflict dynamics and what can be done to pull Sudan back from the brink of an all-out civil war. Now here is my conversation with Hala Al-Karib live from Khartoum, and we spoke just two hours after an ostensible short humanitarian ceasefire was supposed to go into effect. Hala, first, thank you so much for speaking with me in such dire circumstances. So we're speaking two hours after a ceasefire was supposed to be enacted, a a pause in the fighting. Is there a pause in the fighting right now in Khartoum? Well, until about 6.30, quarter to 7, there have not been a pause in the fighting. So... Right now, I'm not quite sure if they actually paused. We have a lot to do tomorrow. We're kind of trying to avoid going out tonight because you never know. But we need food. We need some basic needs. I'm staying with my mother and my aunt, who are both really um, elders and seniors. So I need to get more medications for them and things like that. And then other people, I can imagine the long list they have, people with children, people who didn't leave their homes since last Saturday. Khartoum is a city of over 8 million people. I would say close to 90% of those people are working in the informal economy. And to be able to put food on the table, they need to leave their homes and do some work and come back. And this has not been happening for the past four days. In addition to the thousands of people who are trapped in different locations. So I hope they take it seriously. I'm not sure. It's um, an environment of uncertainty, um, unfortunately. So, so we'll see. And where were you when the fighting erupted on Saturday? I'm in Khartoum. I, I came to Khartoum. And I just can't imagine what would have happened to my family if I didn't come. Well, I mean, I remember last time we spoke, I think you were in Kampala, but you just happened to be back. Right. And, and you know, the failure of the democratic transition in Sudan was predictable. When we spoke last, just a few weeks ago, you more or less predicted that something like this would happen. I mean, I recommend that people go back and listen to that episode. But in brief, you explained many of the key challenges facing a return to civilian rule. Chief among them was the balance of power between the rapid support forces and the Sudanese armed forces and the need to integrate the RSF into Sudan's national army. So analysts like yourself knew that this was like a real possibility, but the actual outbreak of violence, the timing seemed to catch people by surprise. Was there any specific spark that triggered this? And were you caught by surprise by the timing of this outbreak? 
I was definitely caught by surprise. You know, I was shocked. And also the sequence of events very clearly sort of leading into this. And I guess, you know, we just didn't anticipate that it would happen that way. We assumed that they would dance longer around it. They'll try to find a way around it. But apparently a decision was made a while ago. And it's not only me. I feel that even for them, the civilians who were close to decision-making circles, actors from the international community who sponsored this process, everyone seems to be taken by surprise. There were no precautions. But it was very clearly that both men, the top commanders, they knew, and definitely the RSF leadership. So you can tell that a decision has been taken a while ago. I'm just quite surprised that those who were in and out of those circles and moving in between, they couldn't detect that. To your knowledge, was it an RSF attack that sparked this? The RSF attacking Sudanese armed forces positions that that set this off? To be honest with you, just being in this madness for the past four days, I really don't think that's an important question, Mark, Hmm. because I think the important question is the fact that this decision was made and the RSF has also made their decision as well and made up their mind. Mm -hmm. In my view, it was a matter of time. This is why I'm so frustrated with those who claims you know, that they were part of a process with those actors, yet they were not able to actually alert anyone or to try to contain the situation before it escalates or reach that point. I don't think it happened randomly. I think it's uh, both parties, they very much knew that it's going to happen. And so... What do you see as a path out of a escalating cycle of, of violence, which we seem to be trapped in right now? Is there any significant role that the international community can play? I mean, the RSF does have international sort of alliances and connections with Saudi Arabia and, and the United Arab Emirates. The SAF has their connections with Egypt. Is there any opportunity for the international community to I don't know, apply pressure or do what they can to de-escalate the situation right now. I think the international community should, for once, take a serious position towards investing on Sudan security arrangements, which is quite connected to transformation to democracy much more seriously. When I say much more seriously, meaning that with a short-term and long-term strategy, And, you know, looking at Sudan from all the angles, I mean, Sudan is extremely poor country. It has its problems, but also, you know, it's quite complex because Sudan is part of Northern Africa. So you have to look at Sudan from a Northern African angle. Sudan has connection with the Gulf. Sudan has connections with the Sahel region and Sudan and South Sudan. They have got their own connection. And then you have the connection of Sudan to the Horn of Africa and Ethiopia. So I think 
regionally, this has to be taken into account. And then internally, all this dynamic has its reflections on the internal political dynamics. And to be honest with you, I don't think they have been an investment in a serious security sector reform process that would take that all these elements into considerations and all those actors in the ground into consideration. That did not happen. The approach that the international community has been taking towards Sudan is basically kind of brushing Sudan issues very quickly and try to get rid of it and try to hush Sudan. Sudan will not be quiet because it's very complex. And I don't think if there is strong will, I think Saudi Arabia and Egypt right now, they are more or less became close on the same page in terms of wanting stability in Sudan. I mean, stability, definitely not democracy, but that's a step that could be mm-hmm. negotiated internally also investing time with the different actors. And the way I see it, the military elites in Sudan right now represented by the RSF and the army, the RSF came out of the army. And so they don't have any understanding of compromises. And they don't understand that you need to give something, you know, to be able to move forward. But I think if they are at this point in time, you know, the level of volatility, you know, a hefty price, both of them, you know, RSF even more, they have a lot to lose. At the moment, it does not seem like the two sides are eager for any sort of compromise, as you describe, and that they are determined to keep on fighting. How concerned are you that this fighting will continue to escalate and turn into just like a major humanitarian crisis? I mean, it already is a major humanitarian crisis. Like you and and millions of people in, in Khartoum are running out of food and water. but should this grind on for months? Like, how bad could this get? In Khartoum, if it would go for another week, it would be catastrophic. I don't think Khartoum can take that. But I think more or less Khartoum is going to come somehow. There will not be a conclusive win, but I think the biggest disaster it's going to continue to happen in Darfur. And I think this time, if a political process that will ignore Darfur, and when I say Darfur, I'm not talking, because people, when they think about Darfur, they think about the armed groups. And, and that will take us, you know, get sucked in, into the same cycle of warlords. You know, actually what's happening in Darfur, you know, in reality, you know, from the perspectives of the, citizens who are living in that region. So if we are not going to take Darfur into the equation and for any kind of season of hostilities process, I think it will be a cycle. I think Khartoum will be attacked again and again. So any process of seizing of hostilities, it has to include Darfur. It has to be Khartoum. It has to be Darfur. So you suspect that Khartoum will more or less like be okay, maybe because it's more in the international spotlight. The sides will cease hostilities in Khartoum, but 
continue fighting each other in Darfur and in the far west, where there have already been reports of like terrible atrocities, you know, happening and aid agencies being looted and airports being shut down. That you figure will be the kind of locus of the fighting between the two forces. Very true. Yes. So I don't think the international community has the opportunity. We can't afford, you know, a Sudanese nor anyone sensible can actually drop Darfur anymore. It has been dropped for over 20 years. Lastly, in the coming you know, days, what are you going to be looking towards? Any indicators that will suggest to you how this situation might unfold, for better or worse? I think the army will prevail, you know, somehow here in Khartoum. They need to do that because it's a political move for them. You know, for the first time, people are afraid, you know, the relationship between Sudanese and South has been, you know, it's about distrust and disregard. And SAF has been the institution that was constantly committing atrocities. And even if they are not doing directly through, through the RSF and so on. But it is the only national army that Sudan has. And I think Sudanese, they are looking at SAF and they are looking at the RSF and they would definitely develop empathy for SAF, you know, fear and insecurity, and they would really hope for stability. And I think this is what SAF is kind of emotionally driving people towards. And here is going to be the big challenge for returning again into the process towards democracy and civilian governments. Because if SAF came out as the winner, they are definitely going to be the major player in this situation politically. So the question is, how are they going to play it? I think that's the big question. And I'm, I'm really concerned and worried that we are all going to struggle then with a very serious backlash. I don't think that they will return and bring the Muslim Brotherhood. No, I think it can be an, a new form of totalitarian regime. That's one direction that the military could move forward. Thank you so much for your time and please stay safe. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.